You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. Well, E.J., this is going to be our last uh, conversation we're going to have about the Apostles' Creed. We're going to kind of get into some other stuff when we're finished with, with the Creed, but we're going to kind of finish by, by looking at this last little section of the Creed that says this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the community of saints. And if you didn't listen to our last episode, listen to that one. We talked about the church, believing in the church. But this final section, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The final little section of uh, the creed. Amen. So when I when I read this final section, um, I uh, am sort of drawn, at least uh, in part, I'm drawn to... Um, my family, the last couple of years, I um, part of growing up. I'm 41 years old. Uh, I have, in the last few years, been learning some critical new skills. As a 41 year old man, uh, I have been learning some critical new skills around boundary making, how to have healthy boundaries, and particular with uh, family, extended family, getting to say, you know, this is the, in in our home, in our home, you know, when when you're here. These are the house rules. Um, this is this is what Thanksgiving is going to look like this year. This is what coming over to our home looks like. Setting house rules. Yeah. Um, it's it's the it's it's the rules under this roof. This is, when you're going to be here. These are the kinds of things that we expect. Every house has its rules. Um, every house has its sort of uh, its culture. culture. It's, yeah, you name it. And when I finish this uh, this creed. Um, in a lot of ways, elements of this creed to me kind of read the way a family reads, and in, in, in the sense that it's it's almost as though the early church is saying, "These are the house rules. These these are the things that these are the in and out things." Um, but more than that, this is the culture. This is this is what when you're in our house, this is the kind of stuff that we do. So when I read, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, on one level, that is the forgiveness of sins before God. That is that in this house, we are forgiven by God. But it's more than that. I mean, it, it's, it dovetails the, the language of believing in the church. I think it's more than just being forgiven by God. It's more than that. It's that in this house, there is forgiveness between people. Yeah. That we believe in forgiving one another. Um, that the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, that the resurrection of the body, we are in this house. We are a people that always long and yearn for resurrection. There is no room for cynicism in this house. There is always resurrection. There is always power. That we are people who uh, believe in life everlasting. We do not hold on to every moment thinking this is the only chance I have to have a good time. We live forever and there is life eternal. So to me, when I when I read this, it, it's like it's like house rules. This is what it's like to be in the house, and I got to tell you, uh, this is a beautiful house. Mm. Yeah, I love forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> Let's talk about that for a second. Nije, do you think that the apostles are speaking about forgiveness from God, but also speaking about a community of forgiveness? I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that's true? I do. Um, you know. I think we've mentioned maybe in the first episode in this series that um, the early church catechized Christians, meaning taught them, raised them up in the faith, and they would use three key resources for doing that. The Ten Commandments to teach kind of the lifestyle 
and the moral values of faith, the Lord's Prayer, which teaches the spirituality uh, of, of the faith, and then the Apostles' Creed, which is what we're talking about. Um, in the Lord's Prayer, you have, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, right? Presuming human problems, human divisions and fights, uh, flaws, it's, you know, that we're going to need to, we're going to need to forgive each other just as God forgives us. I think that's there. What I really love about these little pieces at the end of the creed, which almost feel like kind of a hodgepodge, like the, the earlier mm-hmm. parts are so well organized yeah. and this just seems to kind of be thrown in there yeah. at the end. But I think that what's happening is the creed ends with the end game of the mm-hmm. faith. What is this all about? I think what really inspires me is if we're ever losing hope or losing vision of what this Christianity thing is all about, the creed ends with, with what we actually have to gain in this family of faith, what we have to gain in this messy relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I think the reason that this is important is because it's so easy to turn negative about the faith based on some of the experiences we have. You were talking in some earlier episodes about some marriage uh, books you've read and, and some of the work that I've read uh, from John Gottman. He talks about something called negative sentiment override. And that's when you get into kind of a dark place in a relationship with somebody – uh, Gottman says you can kind of rewrite your memories and actually turn them darker than they really were. And this is actually a, a, one of the signs of what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse uh, of your marriage, which means you're kind of heading to this doom point in your marriage mm-hmm. because you can't remember positively aspects, especially of the early part, the formative part of your relationship. I think we can do that with our faith. We can do that with God. We can do that with the church where we can say, what's the point? Why bother? Who needs this? If you remember in the Old Testament, Israel does this when they go into the wilderness. They're following Moses out into the wilderness. And then they're starting to think, oh, man, life was better in slavery in Egypt is that we ate watermelons and leeks. You know, we ate all this good stuff back there. You could We could so easily question the experience we have now and talk about how bad it is. Maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a friendship and say, oh, how much better it was before when really that wasn't the case. I think what's so important about the creed, especially these last lines, is it reminds us what God is freely offering to us. I want to talk about the forgiveness of sins. In some ways, we think of it as something as simple as wiping the slate clean. So, for example, some insurance companies, car insurance companies, offer first accident forgiveness. So, you you know, I have a 16-year-old. She's driving. And, you know, you get in your first fender bender and they say, okay, first accident forgiveness. We won't increase your premiums, all that. That's not actually what the Bible means by forgiveness. That's a very transactional, sterile form of forgiveness that's actually a business proposition. It's actually good for the insurance company because it keeps you loyal. That's not what God means when he talks about the forgiveness of sins. It's much bigger than that because it's, it's in it's in the context of a real relationship. The image I love to use, AJ, actually comes from Hebrews, where Hebrews talks about being freed from the sin that entangles us. 
so that we can run the race with freedom. Mm. And so the image I always have of that is, you know, let's say you're about to run a marathon, right? And someone, you know, is trying to make sure you don't do well and they tie your shoelaces together at the beginning, right? Just imagine that happens and you start to run and you trip and fall and scrape your knee and your shoelaces are tied together. And someone, and let's say you're stupid enough to get up and start running again with your shoelaces tied together. Mm -hmm. Terrible idea. What God does is he cuts, right? He cuts that knot. Or let's say a net is thrown over you and he cuts you loose. That feeling of release, that feeling of freedom, that's what forgiveness of sins is. It's not just erasing something on a document. It's that sense that this thing that has been holding you back in life God is cutting you out of that, releasing mm. so you can run mm. with freedom. That image mm. is so much more beautiful to me in terms of how God makes our lives better, not only in the future when we go to the pearly gates, but in the here and now where he's able to cut our ties to addictions, through, maybe yes. through through natural means, but also through the Holy Spirit and through kind of the encouragement of the gospel through the church. Um, that's this vision of forgiveness of sins. Um, wh- where do you go when you hear that language? Well, um, the, it's it's interesting. He says forgiveness of sins. He doesn't say f- the, the or, excuse me. The creed says forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say the forgiveness of bad opinions. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't say the forgiveness of um, you know differing uh, you know different preference of worship styles. It doesn't like it's it's talking about sin. And that there's forgiveness of sin. So in a way, here's what strikes me is I think this implies that the church is not only a place of of forgiveness. It's also a place of confession Mm. that in the church, we name our sins to one another. We, you know, this, that, that the church becomes the place in which the dark parts of us can be named and, and unentangled. Uh, I was reading uh, just this last week, a book about, um, uh, about AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, a kind of a brief history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was, this one particular psychologist says there's never been a more powerful, um, society changing organization like AA in the last 200 years, yeah, the last 100 years in America. That. And his point was quite simply that, um, that when you create a community where confession can actually happen, it changes people's lives. John Wesley figured this out. You know, the the entire Methodist movement is built on small bands of people that would get together, confess their sins, and there'd be forgiveness. You can't have forgiveness without confession, and you can't have confession without forgiveness. You gotta have both. And I think sometimes we do church, you know, I believe in the church, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes we do church where there's forgiveness, but we don't name stuff. Mm-hmm. And that is cheap grace to borrow bond offer. That's not real grace. Real grace must have the sin named. It must be talked about. It must be uh, dealt with. What an interesting thing to think about at our moment in history when it comes to issues of of, of racial realities. Like, uh, we, we, do we demand forgiveness without the naming of sins? Hmm. You can't have forgiveness without the naming of sins. You must have both. Yeah. Uh, there must be. So, it, what I think it's, I think what strikes me, in addition to what you're saying, is that these. The early apostles saw the church as a place of forgiveness and a place of confession. Now, I'm struck. I'd love to ask you as a New Testament scholar. I'm struck that the creed explicitly states that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Yeah. Not merely some sort of ethereal spiritual resurrection. He resurrected in our hearts sort of garbage. 
but that the actual bodily resurrection is in or out issue. It's a non-negotiable thing. In the earliest Christian community, Nije, uh, both in the New Testament and as far as you can tell in the earliest church, was this an in or out issue, bodily stuff? Was that was that non-negotiable, the bodily resurrection? Well, what we know is it would have been really hard for people to understand because from Greek philosophy, Greek religion, there was uh, a, often a negative view of the body as something that one could, must transcend. Um, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the cave, the cave illustration where you have this world of ideas and world of ideals. And then you have, you know, these people in this material world and, and the material world is a poor copy of the spiritual things. But a Hebraic Jewish understanding actually values the body. Um, and, and the old, in the Old Testament, you didn't have a view of a spiritual afterlife. Um, nobody thought they would be separated from their body. Um, and so there's actually a, a really powerful message for us today because so much Christianity for so many years has really been dualistic in the sense that what matters is the spirit or soul within me and not my body. You know, it's interesting. I remember this is about 15 years ago, but I remember seeing, you know, a pastor who had a, a pedometer on. I didn't know what a pedometer was. And I said, what is that? And he says, oh, it's a pedometer. It tracks my steps. He said, we're doing this in the United Methodist Church because they're doing a study of the physical health of Methodist pastors because, uh, you know, the insurance, the health insurance is so expensive. And that's because uh, part of the reason I think is because there is this kind of mentality for pastors that what matters is preaching. What matters is um, soul work. And then, you know, you're eating all this food at potlucks. You're sitting in the car all the time going from place to place. And you're not really taking care of your physical body. So this doctrine is really, really important because it reminds us that embodiedness is not something to transcend when we meditate. But embodiedness is actually cornerstone for our spirituality. I know we've talked about even the poverty of the language of spirituality that can set up a kind of body-spirit dualism. I've been moving more and more in the direction of theologians that say um, we aren't just beings that live in a body. We are, we are mm. our body. Now, that mm. doesn't mean we're doomed if our body is broken. The whole vision of the resurrection of the body is that, you know, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, when the Savior comes back, he'll transform our lowly bodies to conform to the image of his glorious body. What Two things we learn from that. One is Christ has a body, uh, you know, in his glorious state, which is great. And, a, and the second thing we learn is his body is the same and different. Mm -hmm. It's the same in the sense that it would have been resembled the same kind of body in some way, but different in the sense it's not vulnerable to decay, not vulnerable to illness, death, brokenness in the same way as our body is now. So this is hard to imagine, but it is a beautiful thing to think about the life everlasting as, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't know what your students think about, you know, living in heaven, but I don't think about it as sitting on clouds, you know, eating bonbons or whatever people do in heaven. We, we like do. I love, yeah, yeah, okay, just checking. No, but I, I tell my students, I think of it actually a lot like this earth with forests and cities. 
but 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 sin and decay just won't hold us back. Mm. Um, I, I tell my students, think about the work that you love, whether it's painting or um, writing a book or riding a bicycle or running a race. I think we'll do all those things, mm. you know, in, in the new world, but sin just won't hold us back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got, uh, I, I wrote, uh, quoted, uh, I quoted a theologian on Twitter not too long ago. And I, I, the quote was, uh, in heaven, we will no longer need to read. It was, I, I was actually quoting Carl Bart, uh, who we've referenced a few times here. Uh, we'll no longer need to read because we'll have the face of God. And I got major pushback because, uh, this whole kind of segment of Christians, um, challenged me and said, what, what makes you think that when we enter the heaven, heavenly domain, when we enter the presence of God, we will no longer continue to learn as humans? What makes you think we won't continue to experience um, human development the way that we do? I think that's a really interesting question, right? Like, like in, in heaven, uh, which is the new creation, heaven on earth, um, can can I gain and lose weight? Can I continue to develop my exercise routine? Can I continue to read books and great literature? I think these are really important questions. Well, I think another important question is, you know, if we're embodied beings, will we um, have the memories of our human existence in that in that new state? Will we have that the, the things that we experience now? You know, Jesus had scars. Will we have our memories that carry with us? And, you know, I, I tend to think we will have those memories. We'll continue to remember this life. It'll be, although th- it will be as though we, we'd woken up from a dream that was a horrible dream. It'll be, I think Tim Keller uses that image, like waking up from a nightmare. But we will remember this life, but it will be in the light of grace and, and mercy. Jesus certainly, right, when he resurrects, remembers the disciples' names. He, 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 and, and he keeps eating food and walking through walls at the same time. So it's, it's a still a human body. And... Uh, man, this cool, like, walk through walls sort of thing. So I like the way you said it. You said it will be like and different at the same exact time. Mm-hmm. Similar. They recognized him, but then they didn't recognize him. He looked right. differently. So the sense of, like, continuity and discontinuity at the same exact uh, exact time. This last line, this whole thing about, and the life everlasting. So is that talking about living forever, Nijay? Is that the big idea here at the very end? Um. This is one of those things I always think of the same image, which I think is a bad one. And that is from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, um, which is one of my favorite Indiana Jones movies. And you have this search for the Holy Grail. I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but you should have watched it by now. But, you know, you have the search for the Holy Grail. And when Indy gets there, there's a guardian of the Grail uh, who's been granted everlasting life, but he just keeps getting older and, and frail. And that's a terrible image. Like nobody, like I don't, I, I don't know if this is too much confession. I don't want to live till I'm a hundred. Like yeah. I, I don't want to be Death is a sick gift. for like a, for like a decade. Like I don't yes. want to like just see my body waste away. And so everlasting life, um, doesn't, when the Bible uses it, it doesn't mean just getting older <laughs> forever. Like that's, mm-hmm. that, 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 that's, that's a dis, that's kind of a depressing yeah. notion. Uh, one of the one of the images that I've heard throughout the years is instead of thinking of it as everlasting life, thinking of it as immortality. Immortality is different than everlasting life. Everlasting life is is temporal. 
uh, immortality is a quality, meaning you're invincible. And what that means really is, you know, ancient people, especially Jews and Christians, thought of death as almost like a, a slave master. And we're kind of beholden to this slave master. We're in the grip of the slave master who's kind of just taking pieces of our life away over time. And the whole idea of immortality, of everlasting life, is not just adding more days. It's the idea that we've been freed from this master called death. And now, you know, we have kind of perfect freedom. Um, and so it's really kind of a quality of life, right? I don't know if you've have, you, you wear glasses, maybe you have this experience where let's say your vision is getting a little bit worse over time and you need an upgrade to your glasses, right? You need to increase the prescription and you put those new glasses on. Oh my gosh. Like the trees look clearer and sharper. Like I can see people again. I kind of think about that way with eternal life, with immortality. It's, it's not just more of the same, but it's actually on a whole nother level of better and for eternity. Right. Is that, is that, is that a clarifying image for you? It is. I mean, I appreciated what you said at the very beginning about, um, this, this idea that actually in a way, Death is a gift, right? At the very beginning, Genesis 3, God says, Genesis 2, God says, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And we read that as though God is being mean, when in reality, it's a gift. Hmm. And it's a gift because um, God refuses to allow humans to live on eternally in rebellion. Like there is an end point. And what a gift. Hmm. What a gift to, to refuse to allow us to perpetually live in rebellion without some moment to be able to make a final decision, right? Like, like there, there, there isn't, there's an end point. And yet after that, there's life after life after death to borrow, you know, uh, Tom, Tom Wright's phrase, this idea that there will be, um, a, a state at which that death no longer reigns and rules. And as the book of Hebrews says, where we will no longer be afraid of death and that mm. the fear of death will no longer control us, which is the controlling thing of most of our lives is the fear of death. But what a great way to end a creed is like no no fear of death. Gosh, what a, what would a, how powerful it would be to live our life without fearing death. And I'm going to guess in the f- first few centuries when Christians were being um, treated quite poorly by the Roman Empire, what remarkable news to end on that you have a hope that you look forward to. The the sword may be put up to your neck, but you have an eternal glory that is uh, unimaginable. And to all of that, we would have to say Amen. And amen. And amen. Absolutely. Yeah. Praise be to God. Well, we'll um, keep the conversation going. We're going to go in a different direction next time around, but it's been a joy to go through the creed with you. Yeah, absolutely.